Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania and its people. This week, Char Miller discusses his book, Gifford Pinchot and the Making of Modern Environmentalism. Char Miller, author of Gifford Pinchot and the Making of Modern Environmentalism. For people who don't know Gifford Pinchot, can you give a little thumbnail sketch about who he was? Well, Gifford Pinchot was one of those fascinating uh, figures in American political landscape. He grew up in New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., a family of fabulous wealth and great fortune. Uh, and politics was his desire. And in a sense, he not only grew up here, but he became a political figure in this state. But before that, he had been uh, first chief of the U.S. Forest Service, a close confidant of Teddy Roosevelt, and then a two-time governor of Pennsylvania. So in the teens, 20s, 30s, and 40s, he was a powerhouse in this state and, frankly, nationally as well. Why did you write about him? Well, I've, a lot of different reasons. First of all, I was really intrigued that someone like him uh, who grew up with a, a large family wealth would become a reformer. That made no sense to me at some level. We think of our political reformers as coming from potentially impoverished situations or minority status, and he was neither of those things. And so that someone like him was interested in the politics of reformation was striking. Um, secondly, I knew a lot about his life as a forester. I knew absolutely nothing about his life as a governor. So that instruck me as, as, as an intriguing process where someone who was so important at the federal level then moves down to state politics, and I wondered how and why he did that. So I think there were multiple reasons why. And frankly, another is issue was that um, we live in an age in which the environment is critical. We don't have many figures like Pinchot anymore, and I was curious why that was also true. Uh, your book is called Gifford Pinchot and the Making of Modern Environmentalism. When he came onto the scene, what was the state of environmentalism? Well, there wasn't much, which is why I'm, I'm arguing that in part he is at the foundation of what we understand to be the environment. Uh, the term they used was conservation, but I think today we would fold that into a more modern sense of an environment and ecosystem management uh, that prevails in, in many of our states and, and our national government as well. Its, its status in the late 19th century when he came of age was that the idea of nature and of humans' interactions with it um, had been largely one of exploitation, un, unmitigated exploitation, unregulated exploitation. And he was one of those who helped Americans understand that that posed two problems. If you exploit two the extinction of the resources, whether it's coal, iron, or in his case, wood, then you're in serious jeopardy. And if you do that, then you jeopardize the larger American economy and endanger our very way of life. So he probably, more than most, was able to take the idea of conservation, turn it into a political notion, and make it a household term such that average citizens understood why um, rapid exploitation of resources in fact hurt them and hurt them badly. You referred to him as a forester. Yes. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's a good question because in his day, he, was, um, he found himself after his training as a forester 
someone who very few people could figure out what it was that he did. A woman once asked him, when she heard that he was a forester, does that mean you work with rose gardens? A man who's working with trees, working with, with small plants. I mean, he had to laugh at stuff like that, but that was the kind of uh, misconception. What it means is that you approach the management of timber in a scientific, rational manner, which at least theoretically entails that your cutting never exceeds the capacity of that forest to continue to produce wood. In short, you don't go in and clear cut, rip it down, and then hope nature will restore the land. In fact, what you try to do, as he understood it, is to cut easily, selectively, and carefully so that the forest would continue to provide a stream of resources, not all of it timber, wildlife, recreation, and the like, simultaneously. He was a pioneer in that? He's thought to be, and certainly he would argue he was, the first scientifically trained American forester um, that this country had ever produced. There had been others. There were Germans who came over um, in the late 19th century. But in truth, he was not only the first trained in it, the first American trained in it, but, but he would admit that he was not well trained. And what he really was is a politician who understood forestry and made it a political reality. Did he coin the phrase conservationism? Well, he liked to say he did. Um, and he tells a story in his autobiography, Breaking New Ground, which came, uh, a third version of which came out in 1998, uh, which a friend and I reworked, um, that, that one day while riding on his horse in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., he had this stunning realization, an epiphany, in which he recognized that the issues that he was working on, on forestry and water and landscape restoration, all of these things came together in a way in which this concept of conservation uh, bound them all together. And so he and his peers in the federal bureaucracy, as chief of the Forest Service, that's part of, part of what he did under the Roosevelt administration, that if they all thought collectively about what their work was, that conservation might in fact be the rubric under which their work could be fitted. And it was a nice handle. It was a word, a single word that identified an issue. So, and, he, and he credited himself so he with that. that. Yeah. You also say in the book, did he, did he really, or is it just coincidence, coined the phrase New Deal? That's a tough one to know. When he was governor of Pennsylvania, he argued that what, in fact, running for his second term as governor of Pennsylvania, he argued that what Pennsylvanians needed was a new deal. As he didn't he call is with FDR. The new deal. He called it a new deal. Franklin Roosevelt would, in effect, make that term national, uh, much to Gifford's chagrin. He always wanted to be president. In effect, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So he comes up with the idea, but he doesn't get the political payoff. He did want to be president? Oh, absolutely. Um, having served with the first Roosevelt, with Teddy Roosevelt, and had been worked very closely with him and was a close, close friend and confidant, and in fact, political strategist for Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford thought, well, if Teddy could do it, surely I could do it. Uh, and his scheme always was to return to Pennsylvania, become involved in the state's politics, become a state a representative from the state to the national legislature, by which he really wanted to be in the, in the U.S. Senate, and from that platform then launch uh, a career or at least in a campaign for the White House. It never happened, much to his great disappointment. 
You have a quote in here of Teddy Roosevelt talking about him saying, Gifford Pinchot is the man to whom the nation owes most for what has been accomplished as regards to the preservation of the natural resources of our country. I believe it is, uh, it is but just to say that among the many, many public officials uh, who under my administration rendered literally invaluable service to the people of the United States, he on the whole stood first. Yes. That's pretty high praise from Theodore Roosevelt. Rather high praise. Um, and the fascinating thing about that is not only that he said it, but the context in which he felt compelled to say it in his autobiography. Um, that was not in the first draft of the autobiography. In fact, he rarely talked about Gifford in there. And Teddy made the mistake, I guess, of showing Gifford his draft because Gifford often wrote many of Teddy's speeches. And he was a very able speech writer and very gifted with words. So he read this chapter out loud to his mother, and his mother was infuriated. Mary Eno Pinchot, who grew up in a stunningly wealthy household. Her father, Amos Richard Eno, was basically the Donald Trump of his age in the 19th century. He owned good chunks of New York landscape and real estate and created Broadway as a street, in effect. Uh, so she knew something about power. And so she wrote Teddy Roosevelt and said, you disappoint me greatly. How could you leave Gifford out of this when I know what you think about my son? And I know that you have left it out and you should not. Well. Teddy Roosevelt could not resist Mary Eno Pinchot's barbed attack, however subtle it was. He knew the barbs were there. And so graciously, and I think properly, rewrote the chapter to include such high praise for Gifford, who merited it. But as Roosevelt said to Mary Pinchot, look, Gifford and I both know that one doesn't tout one's own horn. You let other people do it for you. And her reply was, then you should do it for my son because there are enough people who hate his guts. You ought to show your support for one of your loyal, loyal servants, in effect. And he did. He caved. He caved. <laughs> uh, while we're talking about his parents, his father you refer to as, as Gifford Pinchot's omnipresent guide. Right. His father, James Pinchot, was in his own right wealthy a self-made man to some extent. Um, Where did he get his money? He got his money from, well, really two places, one of which his family, which grew up in Milford, Pennsylvania, had come to Pennsylvania in the early 19th century from France, um, had been very successful in turning Milford, Pennsylvania into a very powerful commercial entrepot, a, a small town, but a really critical town in the northern part of the Delaware. And, Yet for James, it was too small of a town, and New York beckoned, and like many of Milford's greatest citizens, they left town and moved to places like New York City to make their, make their way in the world, as did one of James' brothers, Edgar Pinchot. When Edgar and James got to New York, it was a bustling, exploding, pre-Civil War commercial um, center, and he got really quite wealthy based on selling wallpaper and curtains and furnishings for the homes of the rich, furnishings for a remarkable building called the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which just happened to be owned by the woman whose father owned that hotel, Amos Richard Eno. So there's a very interesting intersection between the ambitious James Pinchot, the very rich and sp speculator Amos Pinchot, and there was the beautiful Mary Eno. And when James married her, he could retire. Uh, and she and he raised their children, in effect, to become important players in the world, and that's a pretty good job. How did he meet Teddy Roosevelt? Gifford Pinchot. Gifford. Well, no one really knows quite how they met first. Um, the guess is that they probably met in one of the busy political and social clubs of New York City, to which both Gifford and Teddy belonged. 
um, I have as sort of their first interaction, and an important one, when Theodore Roosevelt was governor of New York, and Gifford uh, went to see him and tells this wonderful story in his autobiography as he approaches the executive mansion in Albany. There was Teddy Roosevelt leaning outside the window with ropes, helping his children to escape the building from attack from favored or feared Indians. And Gifford knew that this was a man of his own heart, a playful man, a man who loved to uh, sort of joke around with kids. And so that night they had two contests. One was boxing and one was a wrestling match. Gifford Pinchot, who stood a stork like 6'2", easily outboxed uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a bit smaller and a bit more squat. In fact, he knocked Roosevelt off his substantial pins, as Pinchot put it. Uh, but he then had to wrestle the very stocky Teddy Roosevelt and found out that reach wasn't everything when you wrestle. And so Teddy gladly pinned Pincho to the floor. And in that kind of sweaty embrace, their relationship was sealed. And they, they went hiking and camping. And uh, Oh, you, you refer in the book to a, a time when Gifford Pincho was uh, harpooning porpoises? Yes. Uh, both Teddy and Gifford Pinchot were fabulously interested in wilderness and human beings' relationships to it. That partly concerned an aesthetic appeal of the landscape. They both felt that to be in nature, to be thoroughly ensconced in it, was the best place a human being, a man, could be. They loved to hunt. They loved to fish. They liked to walk. Um, they also liked the notion that in their relationship, shown here in this photograph of Gifford and Teddy Roosevelt on the Mississippi River in 1907, that it's in that environment. Not only did you get sort of a high, a kind of wilderness high, but it's there that human beings were probably at their best in an interesting sort of way. And so there's two ways to approach that. I'll get to the purpose in a second. But the first of which is that Teddy and Gifford and some of their friends, while the president loved to go out for recreation. They would hike. They would ride horses out of the White House. They took along no Secret Service. Gifford Parrott carried a pistol because they thought somebody ought to be armed just in case the president was shot. And do keep in mind that Roosevelt assumed the White House when McKinley had been assassinated. Mm -hmm. So it's a little odd that there were no Secret Service agents around. But on one day, they went out to the Potomac, and they went swimming. Now, what was odd about that, it was cold. It was in the winter. And they stripped to the buff. And they swam naked across the Potomac. Uh, while Roosevelt was president. While Roosevelt was president. And one time they took the French ambassador with him, who, with great aplomb, stripped down with them before they plunged into the Potomac, except he kept his gloves on. And Roosevelt and Pincho, these manly men, stripped naked, one assumes, in the river, said, what the, what's with the gloves? And the, the, the uh, ambassador from France held up his hands with the glove and said, in case we meet the ladies. <laughs> as if these gloves were fig leaves somehow. Um, but, but for example, one of the things that Pinchot understood and came to recognize with his own work in nature is that there were some lessons to be learned there. You raised the question of a porpoise. He would go hunting and fishing around the globe. Um, and one of the places he went to was the Florida Keys, which he fell absolutely in love with. And in the teens, they were thinly populated. There were no roads there. You got there by sailing. Um, and one day, he is off hunting porpoises because he'd never caught any before. And he's out on a harpoon hunt. But as with most of these hunts, one of the things that Pinchot did was to make sure that the animal had a better shot at winning than he did. And so he went out in a thin-bottomed canoe 
such that his tall frame made it very difficult for him to even stay in balance, let alone to throw a heavy harpoon at an animal. In short, the likelihood is he was going to fall in the water before he ever caught anything. And that, he thought, sort of balanced the odds. Very sporting. Very sporting. Um, and he tried to get these porpoises, and he kept bouncing the harpoons off of them. And finally, he tells this story of, of this porpoise that surfaced just out of his reach and looked at him. He swore, stared at him straight in the face. And he had this eerie feeling that this intelligent being was looking at him and sort of chiding him for trying to slaughter one of nature's finest animals. And he swore after that moment that he would never touch another porpoise in his life. In fact, he had never harpooned any. So it's an interesting process in which he could not get what he wanted. But that's part of the way in which, in, in the book, I try to argue that this man learned a great deal from nature. He was changed by it, transformed by it. Even as he used its riches, he was taught lessons by Mother Nature. You also say he slept outdoors whenever possible, whatever the weather. Whatever the weather. There's a shot in the book in which he is deep in the Adirondacks in full winter. The temperatures he records in his diary were somewhere around 20 below zero, and that's not wind chill. Was that Mount Marcy? Yeah, he was going to go hiking up Mount Marcy. He doesn't know it's quite so cold. He's wearing a sweater and a jacket, and he has an old sealskin cap that he had bought as a child in another ex expedition up into, into the Adirondacks in the winter, and he decides he's going to climb this mountain. Well, that makes a great deal of sense if you want to climb Mount Marcy in the summer. It makes absolutely no sense if you're going to do it in midwinter. That's the picture there. Uh, please note that there is no tent even sheltering him in the, in the winter. So he and a friend decide to uh, go up this mountain. And they start to climb up it with some guides. And the guides are smarter than Pinchot and his friend. And they decide to turn back. One of them subsequently suffered enormous frostbite. Um, and, and yet Pinchot and his friend press on. They get about 3 quarters up the hill of the mountain, recognize that the wind blast alone was going to drive them back. But Pinchot, who is somewhat crazy about these kinds of things, crawls up the mountains on his hands and knees, gets to the top of the mountain, manages to take a photograph, and then slides down this hill, only to discover that this is one of the great blizzards that the Northeast had ever encountered, that 30 inches of snow had fallen on Washington and Philadelphia, and that he had been actually crazy. And as he writes in his diary, it was one of the dumbest things he ever did in his life. But never wanted to miss a story. He hustles back to Albany, he goes over to Teddy Roosevelt's executive mansion, and I suspect brags a bit about what he had did, even though acknowledging he had been a fool having done so. Now, for somebody who was so much of an outdoorsman and uh, led the strenuous life, as they called it, he, you also refer to him in the book as a, a, a great bureaucrat and a right. gifted administrator. It's an odd combination at some level. We don't encounter people so frequently, and Teddy Roosevelt is one of the few like this in which you have a person whose skills in what we would consider the great outdoors were really quite sophisticated. Um, now, here's a picture of him as the head of the U.S. Forest, Forest Service. Service. Right. U.S. Forest Service. And was really a, a, a gifted wilderness man. And yet, he had remarkable executive capacity. Keep in mind that when he returned to the United States, there was no foresters in the United States. He basically invents a profession which is unusual 
in American culture, first of all, especially around an individual such as Pinchot. But what he does is not only to invent the profession, he and his family underwrite one of the most profoundly important forestry schools in the country, the Yale School of Forestry, now the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. So he creates not only the profession, but the graduates who will enter into that profession. He created the U.S. Forest Service so that those graduates would have jobs. Then he creates the professional agency, the Society of American Foresters, founded in 1900, so it's now in its 101st year, that will be the professional organization for those who have graduated from the school that he helped to create, who will then get jobs in the Forest Service that he has helped to create. So he's creating the work, he's creating the graduate school, he's creating the professional training, and the Journal of Forestry, which all of these foresters will now read. He's from top to bottom creating the bureaucracy that will churn out people who will now manage public lands and do so brilliantly. When he becomes governor, though his political opponents thought him, um, as Boise Penrose, a former senator from the state, called him the tree doctor, and he said it with a sneer. What Penrose didn't understand is this kid, this guy had incredible capacity to govern. And when he became governor of the state in the 20s and then again in the 1930s, he demonstrated his ability to be an executive officer second to none. But how is he viewed by the environmental movement today? He has a difficult um, relationship, at least intellectually, with the modern environmental movement, which is why I wrote the book also. I want them to understand that their take on this man is both inaccurate and, frankly, damaging to their own cause. For many in the modern environmental movement, Gifford Pinchot is an anathema, and he is for a particular set of reasons, one intellectual and one's political. The intellectual reason is that Pinchot um, believed that human beings lived within nature. We both lived within it and we live on it. All organisms do, and he understood intuitively and I think also scientifically that there was no way we could not change the landscape because all organisms do. What we had to learn how to do is to live within that organism, uh, within that landscape as an organism, more lightly, more effectively, more efficiently, more rationally, and, and less exploitatively. But we still have to lumber. We still have to mine coal. We are going to graze animals because we need to eat, we need to heat our homes, and we use wood in, in numerous ways. All of that's fine and good, but for the modern environmental movement, certainly since really the middle part of the 20th century, exploitation of resources has become an objective that does not fit within the notion that there are ecosystems that should be preserved from human use. Gifford Pinchot believed in wilderness, but he did not believe that wilderness was devoid of human beings. Since John Muir's arguments in the early part of the 20th century, the, the environmental movement has come to see wilderness as a place where people are not. And that's an important conflict, and he has an important relationship with, with John Muir that has complicated his relationship with the modern environmental movement. Let me give you sort of a background. Pinchot and John Muir were very close friends. Who was John Muir, first of all? Muir was, um, came out of Wisconsin and will become best known for his work in the Sierra Mountains, a kind of self-taught geologist who came to believe that those mountains were, as he called them, the range of light. The light in his mind was a divine light. This is the place that John Muir got closest to God. And so, in a sense, was very much out of the transcendentalist tradition of Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and the others who saw in nature 
the divine presence everywhere. So did Pinchot, by the way. Uh, very much believed similar kinds of things. He, however, recognized or certainly argued that just because the divine was there did not mean the divine didn't want us to live on the land. Um, but Muir and Pinchot had a very, very close relationship. As I discovered in finding letters that no one had ever used before, um, Pinchot and Muir were close correspondents. They appreciated and enjoyed nature with one another in remarkable ways. They went off hikes all over the country together. Uh, and their first interaction, after their first interaction in the Adirondacks, Gifford sent to John Muir a hunting knife to kind of seal his relationship with this very famous man. And it was a good relationship. I mean, there were very warm and encouraging letters up to a point. And the point is in the early 20th century, and the issue turned on a valley in California known as the Hetch Hetchy Valley in the Yosemite National Park. The key here is not the valley, but its relationship to San Francisco. And the relationship is that there was the great earthquake in the early part of the 20th century that devastated San Francisco. And it did it in a way that was really quite critical. When the quake came, it not only took out the gas mains, which flared up and burned down the city, but it also took out the water mains, which would have been used to quench those fires. But that meant that San Francisco had no water supply. And although it had been looking for one in the Sierra Mountains before the earthquake, now it, it narrowed its search really quite quickly to the Hetch Hetchy Valley, a beautiful rock valley that could be sealed off with a dam and provide in perpetuity water for San Francisco, which it has done ever since its construction in the early 19-teens. But that was going to be a Donnybrook of a, a political battle, which stretched from California to Washington, Muir and Pinchot, in effect, went head-to-head -head over this because Pinchot would argue, look, the valley is beautiful. I don't deny it. But San Francisco needs water, and we cannot deny the needs of human beings in this way. What Pinchot didn't know, didn't acknowledge, or didn't deal with is the fact that there may have been other issues that, that the city of San Francisco might have addressed, which is why be in a place where there is no water? Nonetheless, the humans were there, and the issue is joined, and it becomes one of these huge national debates. In fact, really the first large national debate over whether to utilize a beautiful valley for recreation on the one hand, as, as Muir would argue, or for water resources, as Pinchot would argue. In the end, Congress determined that it would go to a reservoir. It has become so still, but one of the things that then happened out of this debate is the creation of the national park system and service to regulate and control and to manage the national parks in ways that are different from the national forests. Is, is John, uh, is uh, Gifford Pinchot among modern environmentalists thought to be uh, the bad guy? In, oh, in definitely the, the bad guy. And part of what I've done, I hope, with the book is to remind readers and, and environmentalists of whom I consider myself one that there are multiple ways by which to think of the environment, first of all. Secondly, that when we talk historically about the, mod the modern environmental movement and still currently, it's helpful to remember that the differences between one part of the movement and the other are far less extreme than between those who believe in environment and its protection and those who do not. And the problem in a political sense has long been that within the environmental movement, there's Pinchot and there's Muir, and they serve as the wide ends of a spectrum. But if you pull back from that spectrum, it turns out they're much closer if you start to add other figures in this process. And so what I've tried to do with the book is to make the claim 
that Pinchot's vision of both wilderness protection and preservation and use makes real political sense in an age in which we have a current president, George Bush, and others like them for whom preservation is even not on the agenda at all. Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. What do you do when you're not writing books? That's a good question. Up until about now, my wife and I have been raising two wonderful children. Um, and, and now they're about to go out. One's off in college. One's about to go off in college. So I'm hitting this point when, when I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, mostly I read, a lot of which I write. Um, we are devout birders. I mean, there's lots of things that we do, but which we've held off in part because our children were young, and, and so we did whatever they wanted to do and wherever they wanted to do it. Um, but I, I mean, I have certain places in my life that are really critical. Martha's Vineyard Island off the coast of Cape Cod is a place in which I grew up and absolutely adore. Um, the West Coast, and particularly Northern California, where my wife is from, we spend a lot of time there going either to the mountains or most especially to the coast. Um, I like being in nature. I mean, it's a wonderful place to be. Um, but it turns out I'm just as comfortable in a library, which is, has its own nature and its own environment. You teach? I do. Uh, it's one of the things I absolutely adore doing. Uh, I've been doing it now for 21 years, and there are very few places I'd much rather be than in a classroom of 20, 25 students who, um, for better or worse, are ready to do some serious arguing about some central issues, environmental issues, urban issues, politics, whatever, whatever the class is designed around. Where do you teach? I teach at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, it's a wonderful small school. Got 22, 2300 students, uh, an intensely engaged faculty. And to my mind, uh, though I didn't know when I, when I first got there, it's the ideal environment for someone who likes to think about the world, bring that world into the classroom, and have students who are fully engaged and, and really quite special in their approach to um, thinking. That's a delight. Is this your first book? No, this is actually about the 13th or 14th. Oh. Um, the last five or six years has been a series of books that have come out, anthologies, text, and the like, that, that really look at environmental issues from water to forestry uh, to recreation, um, and, and most engagingly, in part because of Pinchot, with the politics of the environment. From Texas, how did you find Gifford Pinchot to write about him? Well, actually, I found Gifford long before I got to Texas. Uh, I was in graduate school in, in the 1970s at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And at Hopkins, um, I was given an assignment, in effect, to write about someone who, in the progressive era, made a difference. And since Gifford Pinchot's papers are at the Library of Congress, which is very close to, Washington, to Baltimore, I went down to look at them, and I got fascinated by this young man who, at about my age, was making some huge waves. And I thought, how did that happen? And maybe, why didn't it happen to me? You know, why was I studying about people that were doing really quite intriguing things? Uh, but I set that project aside because I was working then on other issues as well. Um, but I came back to it about 15 years ago when I realized that one of the things I really wanted to do was to try to explain to the environmental movement, and truthfully to myself, why we needed to think more broadly about the politics of the environment and how Pinchot could help us do that. Uh, now, a little bit about him uh, as a person. Yes. First of all, what was he like physically? He was very tall. He was very thin. He was an athlete, though, as he recognized early on in his athletic career. Um, he got more out of athletics than I suspect his teams got out of him. 
uh, he poured enormous energy into his teams. He was a real gung-ho kid. But he wasn't really talented, and he didn't have the weight to throw any weight around. He loved playing football, for example. One of these great moments at Yale in the old days, in the 1880s, was when um, the freshman and sophomore classes lined up on a street on the Yale campus and then threw themselves into a brawl. It was a, apparently a fascinating time, and Gifford Pinchot made, made certain to write his parents all about how his trousers were torn away, and he barely came out with any clothes on at all, and he loved every minute of it. And that's sort of my image of him, this uh, charming man with a big smile on his face uh, and who just sort of loved to throw himself into political fights, as it turns out, also into the gridiron. He has a very distinctive mustache. He has a very distinctive mustache. He grew that at Yale. He nurtured that mustache for the rest of his life because he understood that it separated him from other people. He was really quite attractive. Women called him Apollo when he was a college kid. They really were very interested in this very attractive and wealthy young man. And he was rather attracted to them as well. Uh, but he understood equally that in this, I mean, he used to play for the Yale football team, and he wasn't very good, but by God, he was there at every game. And um, I think that carried with him the rest of his life. There were very few fights that he would not face. You, you mentioned that he was fond of the ladies, and there was one woman in particular I want you to talk about a little bit, Laura mm -hmm. Hodling. Yes, Laura Hodling. Uh, can you tell about sure. her? Sure. This is one of these fascinating stories uh, that, that I knew about vaguely because I had heard through his diary that he had this relationship to this woman. She was someone he met when he was working on his first job at Biltmore, North Carolina, the fabulous estate of uh, George Washington Vanderbilt. A phenomenal, the largest home in the United States at its time, and Vanderbilt wanted to have a forester on the staff to sort of reforest this cutover land in western, western North Carolina. One day while Gifford was working on, these, on this forest, he saw this woman riding by a young woman, absolutely gorgeous. He was infatuated. He kicked his horse into high gear, went racing after her, introduced her, himself to her. They had, had met before, but he was basically reintroducing it, himself to her, and he was totally smitten. She, however, didn't really know who he was and fumbled on his name. He was very embarrassed, but as he was after other issues, he was ardent in his pursuit of her. What's interesting about that is not that he was smitten by her, though that's in, in itself important, but it turns out she had tuberculosis, which he quickly and, uh, learned. She would die from that within a year and a half of their meeting, and their relationship then takes on this tragic tone. She became a very close friend. He grew fabulously close and in love with her. There's no question about that. And yet her death, it turns out, is a weird but very convenient kind of thing because his parents did not want him to marry. And they don't want him to marry because they are very career-oriented. And they worried that regardless of who he fell in love with, that this woman, whoever she might be, would deflect him from what they wanted him to be, which is a, an important force and an important public figure. So her death, oddly, which is revered in the family and revered in his diary, was kind of convenient because she would then disappear from the scene, but she would not disappear from his life. He went to seances to commune with her. His mother would go with him. In Philadelphia, there was an ashram in the early part of the 20th century, an Indian guru, to whom he went to see if he could commune across the divide between the living and the dead to speak to his loved one. In his diary, almost every day, 
for 20 years. He wrote at the bottom of each page of every day. It was a clear day. It was a cloudy day. And at first, I didn't know what he was talking about. Is this a reflection on the weather? He was talking about whether he saw Laura or not. It's a very kind of occultist experience. He would be riding on a train in Frankfurt, Germany, and he would start to write about we. We were reading this book. I'm wondering, who is he writing with? Turns out it's an image of Laura. She was sitting next to him. He would go off into the woods and read Robert Browning poems with us. Who is the us? She was there with him. This very sort of ethereal presence. And actually, he would say when he would give speeches as a forester, when he would go to Congress to have a hearing and the Congress people were pounding on him, she was there. This sort of feminine consciousness enveloped him in a way that's really both a little weird on the one hand, but in his mind, it gave him a kind of stolidity and, and stability that's really quite powerful. But there's a quirk to this. He does not marry until his father dies and his mother is about to die, until he's 49. And so this ghostly presence is with him until that point, and then, in effect, he's handed off to a much more vibrant woman, Cornelia Bryce Pinchot, a powerful figure, a feminist, a woman of this earth who would run for Congress three times from the state of Pennsylvania. She lost every time, but she was a battler. She ran for Congress while he was governor. She ran for Congress while he was governor. She ran for Congress not only from Milford, Pennsylvania, where they had their fabulous home gray towers, but she also ran the third time from Philadelphia where they did not have residence and when it was illegal to do that. She lost every time. Uh, but she was a not only rich woman, but a very strong presence in this state, uh, as much revered as hated as was her husband. And so what we have here in Gifford and Cornelia Bryce Pinchot is, to my mind, a precursor to Franklin and Eleanor and to Bill and Hillary. She really set the stage for very strong women to enter the political arena, on the one hand, on the coattails of their husbands, but this woman wrote on nobody's coattails. In fact, she carried her husband equally uh, because she rallied women to his cause when he was running for a governor as well as for senator. They had a, a child? They had one child. They had had a... Um, miscarriage, actually three miscarriages, until uh, Gifford Bryce Pinchot, their one and only surviving child, was born. Um, and he's an interesting figure, largely because of what he didn't do. He looked at his two very political parents and decided politics was not for him, uh, and so was not going to go in the family business, and became a doctor, became a medical researcher of considerable note, by the way, a sailor, much as his parents were, a, a famous angler, uh, but he, for him, politics was not the issue, although conservation was. He was one of the founding directors of the Natural Resource Defense Council, the N NRDC, which is still a very potent lobbying organization. In northeastern Pennsylvania, he fought desperately and ultimately successfully to preserve the purity of rivers like the Sawkill, which flowed through his family's property. So he was very engaged on many of the issues that his parents found important. He just didn't do it through electoral politics. Is he still alive? No, he died in the 1980s. Um, and his children are still involved in conservation politics. So we now really have almost five generations of Pinchos who have been deeply involved in the politics of the environment and the preservation of wilderness and landscapes. There are Pinchos still in Pennsylvania? There are still Pinchos in Pennsylvania, in Milford, um, who are very much involved in preserving 
uh, that corner of this gorgeous state uh, and making sure it's a greener, more habitable place for all of us. I've got to show this picture. This is Gifford Pinchot riding, uh, I guess he was not yet governor, riding a he is governor. horse. He is governor. He is governor. Time. He is riding a horse in uh, Calvin Coolidge's inaugural parade. 1925. 1925. Uh, was he theatrical? Oh, he was highly theatrical, as this pose would suggest. He knew that camera was there. He turns to it, doffs his hat for a camera because he knows there are readers at the other end of that camera. This was a guy who understood early in his career the power of the press and of publicity. Uh, and you have to take this back to the Forest Service, and I think actually even earlier than that. His parents understood and trained him well to know that publicity on its own could get you notoriety and attention. When he went off to Europe in the middle part of the 1890s, uh, or 1880s, excuse me, to study forestry in Europe, he was writing reports about his work for newspapers in the United States. So that by the time he returned, and he was only gone 18 months, his name was already before scientists, government officials, those concerned with the conservation. Gifford Pinchot was already a made man in a sense, and he just utilized that for the rest of his career. In the Forest Service, for example, um, he was not only a good administrator, he understood about the new efficiencies of organization. The Forest Service was the first agency in the whole of the federal bureaucracy, and I would bet, therefore, in state bureaucracies as well, that went to vertical files. For those of us who deal with file cabinets and know that that's how you think of information, that wasn't true. That wasn't how the 19th century sorted it. They did it horizontally. And so you had to somehow figure out, without being able to see a file, what was in a file. So if you took that and turned it into vertical, all of a sudden you made the Forest Service went to vertical files first. Brilliant. They also went to mail labels. The Forest Service was the first agency to have a mail label system so that they could churn out press reports and then stamp them without handwriting. You could do with fewer secretaries, much more efficient, much more rational, and much faster. He had a Rolodex, not that it had that term then, of 750,000 names and addresses when he left office. This is a guy who understood that the media was going to drive the 20th century. And so when he doffs his hat to a camera, he's simply using the new technology. He was the first to use radio in this state to campaign from because he understood, even at its incipience, where there were stations in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh only, that that's the way to get beyond the political bosses and directly to the voters. So he would use that as best he could, and when motion pictures came out, first off of the mark, Gifford Pinchot used those cameras to sell himself publicly. He was brilliant at it, uh, and in a sense, had come to understand that there's a relationship between how a public sees you and how often it sees you and your polls. I want to ask you about his time as governor, but before we do that, uh, do we talk about his family uh, homestead here? Yes. Gray this is, Towers? This is called Gray Towers, and you can understand why it was called Gray Towers. There Where, are, where's it located? It's located in Milford, Pennsylvania, an absolutely stunning home that has recently been refurbished with 10 to 12 million dollars. Where's uh, Milford? Milford is in the northeastern corner of the state, uh, right where along the Delaware Water Gap, just at its northern end. Um, an absolutely beautiful landscape overlooking that, and as you can tell from this, this picture, when the Pinchot family built its home, there were no trees there. And there were no trees there because Gifford's great 
grandfather and grandfather who were lumbermen had logged over most of northeastern Pennsylvania, reaping from the soil then enormous profits. And it's the Pinchos family's goal is to restore that landscape. So they build this sumptuous summer cottage. Do keep in mind, it was only a summer cottage initially. We should all be so lucky <laughs> to have a cottage like that. And then used that land to reforest it, to make it greener, to restore the wildlife, to rebuild those rivers, to really take what they had destroyed and rebuild. And frankly, if you want sort of a sort of um, metaphor, what the family did at Gray Towers, Gifford Pinchot was to do for the nation as the chief forester. And in effect, he was trained to take those learning, that sort of information and move it to Washington, and now through national forests, make green again the landscape. And when he was governor of Pennsylvania in the 20s and 30s, note the first things he did was to buy cut over land that lumber companies had stripped apart, reforced them to make Penn's woods woods again. He really made this state green. And I think if you look at the vast complex of state forests, many of them, not all, but many of them came from the period in which he was governor or the two times he was governor. When was he governor? He was governor beginning in 1925 through 29, or excuse me, through 27, so 20, excuse me, 23 through 27, and then the second term, because you could not succeed yourself in this state, um, he gets into office in 31 through 35. How did he get elected in the beginning? <laughs> That's a great question. He shouldn't have been, to be honest. Um, then and perhaps still now, the dominant forces in Pennsylvania's politics were two places, Philadelphia on the one hand and Pittsburgh on the other. The East and West battled for control of the state. Both cities had very powerful political machines. Gifford Pinchot did not come from either of those cities. He was not tied into those political machines, and they had absolutely no interest in him. He was a progressive. He was a reformer. They had no interest in either progress or reform because it would have thrown them out of office, so they weren't interested in him. So that poses a problem if you are those things and you want to get into political power, how do you do it? Pinchot was shrewd. He decided he would not do it through elective office first. He would get in a state-appointed position. And so he lobbied the governor, Governor James, and asked him in 1920 if he could be opposed to the Commission on Forests. Who's going to turn down the former chief of the U.S. Forest Service to serve on a state commission? The governor gladly did so, though there was one bit of reluctance. He understood what Pinchot was doing just as easily as Pinchot did, that this was going to be a stepping stone. But he did it. Pinchot got in there, managed to get the, the head of the commission fired for incompetence. No mean feat, keep in mind, since the man had been appointed by the same governor that appointed Pinchot. So there was Pinchot, his head now of the commission, who will make that commission on forests far more uh, inventive, far more streamlined, far more effective, demonstrating his executive power and capacity. From that position, he will then run for his th first chance in 1922 for governorship, running against uh, men who are coming out of the machine. Well, this poses a dilemma. He's third in a three-cornered race. He has to figure out constituencies that aren't voting for the machines. He goes for the prohibitionist vote because he's dry. He goes for the farm belt vote 
because Milford, like many of the northern tier of this state, were agricultural, rural, and poor, and so he speaks for the poor and marginalized farmers. He then goes for a vote that was largely Democratic, but interested in him nonetheless, and Republican as well, the unions. And the fourth and most crucial vote was women. When did women get the right to vote? Women got the right to vote in 1918. They will vote in the first sort of national uh, elections by 1918, 1920, excuse me, and then this first major gubernatorial campaign in 22. And Pinchot pioneers, especially with women, because of Cornelia Bryce Pinchot, a feminist who was devoted to politics, who now can move from sort of the voluntary world of women demanding the right to vote to the world in which women have the right to vote and now can use that vote to elect it. And she was this incredibly vivacious, energetic campaigner. And so he just sent her out on her own, largely, to pound the pavement, speaking to women, to urge them to vote for her husband. And here we have a, a photograph of her carrying an American flag and a suffragette vote so that women could get the right to vote to do what then she would do, which is to campaign for her husband vigorously. The Republican Women's Committees, which were being founded all over the state, she was one of the powerhouses behind that process and uses those committees to generate votes for her husband. The Republican Party is infuriated by this because he's introducing new voters into the mix whom they don't control and for whom there is no patronage. Keep in mind, he's got no patronage to pass around. He's got nothing to offer these people. And that's part of his appeal. He's outside the mainstream. He could say he was running against the bosses and be accurate and also speak the language of reform. So women flock to him. Prohibitionists flock to him because Pittsburgh and Philadelphia were not dry but very wet areas. Um, and so when the Democrats and the Republican, when, within the Republican Party, the wets split because they're running two candidates. Pinchot gets the nomination, and in that period, it meant if you got the Republican nomination, you got the governor's seat. And he won in by a couple thousand votes? He won the primary by about 9,000 votes. He then won, finally, uh, by 250,000 to sweep into Harrisburg. And in that sense, it just drove the Republican Party nuts. They were stuck with the very guy they hated but had to live with uh, for four years as governor. I have to ask you about him being a prohibitionist. And yes. You use the phrase in the book that he waged war on the liquor lobby. Yes. But his, was it his wife and his sister served alcohol at Gray Towers? At their yeah, home? this is one of those funny stories which I stumbled upon going through his brother's correspondence, actually, Amos Richard Eno Pinchot, who was his own political limelight. Um, Gifford Pinchot ran against the liquor lobby, he was an ardent prohibitionist and used the state police to attack stills, illegal stills around the, around the state and made great public publicity based on that, which didn't endear him to certain political entities, but nonetheless he did it, which is probably why he did it. However, as I discovered in his letters, or his brother's letters, at Gray Towers in Milford, there was a stash of alcohol, but it wasn't in Gray Towers Pinchot's home. On the same property was his brother's house, a smaller home, a beautiful little cottage, and that's where they kept the liquor. And it was on his own property. It was not on Gray Towers. So one could have the fiction that Gray Towers was dry and the reality that, in fact, it was wet for his brother to hold liquor on there. Now, whether Gifford knew or not, I don't know explicitly. But there were enough letters between Amos Pinchot 
and Cornelia Bryce Pinchot about the liquor, that there had to have been some information. So while he's sending state police officers to whack out stills around the state, the one place that's left untouched is Gray Tower. My guess is that there were people who knew it because um, those who ran in opposition to Cornelia Bryce Pinchot apparently periodically would accuse her of hypocrisy. So my guess is that some of the servants would be talking. So there was rumors that this was true, uh, but he was never called on it politically and his brother worried desperately that at some point this would come out and destroy Gifford Pinchot's political career, but it never did. And he was governor of Pennsylvania during the Depression. Yes, he was. Second term started in 1930. Correct. Was he able to govern the way he wanted to? Was he able to achieve any well, goals? Well, it, it's, it's interesting with the, with, with, the, with the Great Depression. Again, he ran a tightly fought race. Again, he swept in because the Republicans uh, and the Democrats despised him, but canceled each other out, and in he slipped. Um, another squeaker. Another squeaker. But he adored that political position, especially in times of crisis. And I think this is where Pennsylvanians need to remember him most. He was brilliant in the, in the, in the Great Depression. He was brilliant because he felt deeply the pain of his citizenry. Uh, partly because Cornelia Bryce Pinchot was his eyes and ears. He would send her out into the coal mines, into the iron steel areas of this state to find out what was happening. She would come back and tell him, and he would then put heavy legislative pressure on the legislature itself, pushing them to provide relief, pushing them to provide jobs. Um, among other things, he understood that road building, an innocuous thing, could provide work that would provide incomes, that would regenerate the state's economies. And so he created what are now called Pinchot Roads and have been ever since the 1930s, the first of which was laid down 70 years ago in 1931, just south of Harrisburg, um, in near the land which is now the Gifford Pinchot State Park, was one of the first Pinchot Roads that was built to lift the farmers out of the mud. It's a great sort of rhetorical move, but also a great political one. You're serving farmers, his constituency group. You're giving road building work to those who are unemployed, which is also generating a constituency for you. You are providing an example for Franklin Roosevelt, who will get into office in 1933, and who's asking Pinchot, what are you doing in Pennsylvania that's working in this so-called Little New Deal? And Pinchot says, we're building roads. We are buying up old forest lands and putting workers to work there. He wrote a white paper for Franklin Roosevelt when Roosevelt got into office to explain how Roosevelt could do what we will now call the Civilian Conservation Corps. Pinchot had already started that here. And so that was started in Pennsylvania and exported to the nation. The road building processes were also exported to the nation. So what was going on in this state really helped the nation at large and frankly made Pinchot's name politically. The problem for Pinchot is he would have loved to have been Franklin Roosevelt. He wanted to be in the White House, but once Roosevelt's in there, no one else is going to get in. And frankly, for the rest of Pinchot's life, he's always butting up against Franklin Roosevelt. I have to read you this, this quote that you have in here about uh, in the second half of his term when yes. he was a lame duck. In Pinchot's words, the second session of a governor who can't be reelected is not exactly huckleberry pie. Yes. Something recent governors faced. Recent governors have faced it. Probably all governors have in good measure because you're a lame duck. And there's, why should the legislature listen to you when they know you're going out of office? So basically what you can do is stand up there and use your bully pulpit as best you can and hope to God 
that they will listen to you. They usually don't, but you've only got a kind of rhetorical position and you've got to use it. And that's one of the things that Pinchot, as it turns out, was really good at, slamming away at those who were not acting in ways that he thought they ought to. At the close of his first term in 1927, in January 27, he let loose one of the great political tirades of his day, and frankly of any day, in which he went after what he called the gangster politics of the state of Pennsylvania. He did not hold back. He named names of legislators sitting in front of whom, whom he had evidence were corrupt. He horrified them as they cowered in their chairs, embarrassed them in front of their families. The press gallery was delighting in this, of course, because it made their day for the next couple of weeks as they filled their pages with his invective. But he understood that he had the limelight for only a certain period of time. And if they weren't going to give him a hearing, by God, he was going to make one for himself. So he, he punished a lot of people for, for not behaving in ways that he thought were ethical. I have to read also this part where he um, bid uh, the Capitol farewell after he yes. left office for the yes, last time. Good. Capping his valedictory remarks was his valedictory remarks was his final farewell on a bitterly cold day in 1935 in January. He attended the inauguration of new Governor George Earl. At its conclusion, with Cornelia by his side, Pinchot wearing his favorite battered large-brimmed hat. This is on inauguration day. Walked toward the Capitol amid catcalls and jeers from Democratic loyalists. So long, Giff, someone shouted, and another chimed in, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But when the couple reached and began to walk through the park that extends from the seat of government, cheers and shouts rang down from state employees gathered before the Capitol's windows. With the consummate timing of an actor sensing that the curtain was descending, Pincho spun on his heel, swept off his hat, and bowed. Yeah. Gives me chills. That would have been a sight to see. What a sight to see. And, and it captures a lot of his appeal. He understood political timing. He knew his day was done then, though he would run again for Senate, though only get clobbered one last time. But boy, did he understand how to work a crowd. And he loved it when people catcalled with him because it meant he was being noticed. He loved the cheers that descended on him his last day. And he recognized that there were points at which you just graciously shut up and sort of made a tip of your hat to your supporters and walked off into the day. Um, a really fascinating moment. Uh, we're about out of time, but uh, you talked about Gray Towers earlier. Is it open to the public? It is open to the public. It's a stunning space. I would urge people to go see it. It's a, a phenomenal home tucked away in the northeastern corner of this state. Not a lot of people go. That they, the more are going now because of its restoration. And the staff at Gray Towers are the most extraordinary human beings you will ever meet. They are generous. They are warm, welcoming, and the tour is well worth time spent. You working on another book? I am working on a series of books at the moment. Um, hopefully, one of which will have to do with my hometown of San Antonio. I'm looking at floods and flood control and how it shapes the Southwest. Uh, my hope is to spend a lot of time talking about Pinchot, though, because I still feel that he is one of these underappreciated authorities, but also someone who speaks loudly to our age. Wish we had more time. This is the book we've been talking about, Gifford Pinchot and the Making of Modern Environmentalism. Char Miller, thank you very much. It was my great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.